You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. Father, Son, and Spirit, Father, would you come with your presence, remind us of our adoption as sons and daughters through what Jesus has done. Jesus, would you meet us this morning and we would encounter you as you walk among us. Would we hear your voice clearly this morning? And Holy Spirit, would you rush upon us, both individually and together, like this train that's coming by? Would we sense your presence and what you're wanting to do in our midst? God, thank you for your kindness towards us and how you're with us in every season. We trust you. We uh, give this next time to you to listen attentively to your voice. And would you speak to us this morning? And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this, uh, this past year in December 2020, on December 8th, I'm driving in my car. And usually two options happen when I'm driving in my car. One, either I spend, this is a more holy one, sit in silence and pray and use it as a time to pray from meeting to meeting. But the other one is usually I, t- I turn on a podcast. I'm a big podcaster if you know me. Some people like Chris and Sarah say, how in the world do you listen to so many different podcasts throughout a week? I don't know. I just, I just love to listen to things, love to learn stuff. So this particular morning, I was listening to this podcast, and the commentators of the podcast were describing the first ever COVID vaccine that was administered to a woman in the UK. Her name was Margaret Keenan. She was 91 years old. It was December 8, 2020, and they were describing this amazing moment where the first human ever on planet Earth had received a COVID vaccine. The way the commentators were describing it was like it was the beginning of the end. Sickness was about to be defeated. It was about to be eradicated. It was salvific in language. As if in many ways, and I, and I feel this in my, own, in my own self, in many ways, hearing that moment, the world had been in, in a sense collectively holding its breath. And now for just a moment, they took, like there's hope. There's something coming. There's a sense of normalcy that's going to return. It was really an interesting experience even driving in the car as I was listening to this story. And regardless of what you think about COVID or vaccines or what you think about the whole situation the past year, the truth is this. Deep within the human heart, all of our hearts, deep within the human heart is a restless ache for liberation and healing. What COVID has done is not do something new, but actually it's just revealed in our own hearts this deep ache we have for sickness to be eradicated, death to be defeated, redemption to take place. Deep within our hearts, this is revealed through this virus and then the vaccine that we ache as humans and we're restless for liberation, for freedom, for redemption, for healing. Uh, uh, St. Augustine, who uh, Chris was mentioning a quote from there, he says, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. This is the truth of who we are as God's people. We have this deep ache, and all of humans have this deep, deep ache for God's redemptive work. And so for the next three weeks, we're going to look at the story of Exodus from beginning to end as we lead up to Easter. 
And my hope is that for the next three weeks, as we see this Exodus journey, this journey of God liberating and redeeming his people, that it would become a template for you and me to also experience the liberating, redeeming work of God as well. That the story of Exodus, as we're going to look at the cry, the challengers, and the crossing the next three weeks, would be a template for you to also experience redemption, healing, and an Exodus journey as well as we encounter the living God through the pages of this story. So if you have a Bible, would you open it? Would you turn to Exodus chapter 1? We're going to look at chapters 1 and 2 this morning. And as you're opening it, I want you to get to Exodus 1. It's the second book in your Bible. And as you turn there, before I read these words, I want you for a moment, as you think about our heart's desire for liberation and redemption and for healing and for deliverance, that's within our hearts. All humans, whatever it is, we look for that. Whether it's through a political party, through a leader, through some kind of experience, through some kind of health measure, we're all looking for freedom, healing, and redemption. That's what we crave. Would you right now, just in the quiet of the space, would you offer to God an area of your life that you desire to experience healing or freedom in? Don't need to hide it from him. He already knows what it is. But would you offer as a prayer to start, hey God, this is the area of my life. This is a relationship in my life. This is a pattern in my life that I need healing and freedom. Offer that right now, just in the silence of this space. Now hold that thing in your mind for the rest of our time together. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1. I'm going to read from verses 1 through verse 7. This is what it says. Exodus 1.1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the descendants of Jacob, number 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all of his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Let's stop there. There's two things I want you to notice in these first couple of verses. One, you can't see it in your translation, and most of them don't show up, but the very first Hebrew word in this passage in Exodus 1.1 is the word and. And, because Exodus is a continuation of the story of Genesis. Genesis had, as God was working through his people, all these series of promises and plans that had not reached fulfillment. Exodus, in many ways, is the continuing of those, working out of those promises and plans that God had. So remember, Exodus is a continuation of the story that's already been unfolding in Genesis. The second thing I want you to notice is in verse 7. It says, they were fruitful and multiplied. Does that... Do you hear an echo at all there from a previous part in our story? You should hear the story of Genesis 1-1 or Genesis 1 and 2 where God created everything and he gave humans this command to be fruitful and multiply. So they're fulfilling God's purpose right here, even in Egypt. Israel is growing as God's people. They're being fruitful and multiplying. But two, you should also hear the promise to Abraham specifically in Genesis 15, that said, hey, your descendants will be more numerous than the stars. That's coming true here. God's plans and promises are now coming through and coming true in the story 
of Exodus, even in Egypt. Over the past year, uh, I've been reflecting on some childhood lessons I learned from my parents growing up. I have the privilege to have my mom here this afternoon or this morning, which is great. And so I've been thinking about what are the lessons my parents taught me that I want to pass on to, to my kids. And so let me tell you a quick story. Uh, when I was in fourth grade, I was a really overweight kid, for lack of a better word, super awkward. And my parents decided that year to put me in Pop Warner football. I don't know if Pop Warner's in a bunch of different states, but at least it was here. Pop Warner football. And so they signed me up for Pop Warner fo football, and our team name was the Sinambres, which I know no Spanish, but means no names. And for two weeks before in August, before school started, they decided for fourth graders, they were going to do two-a-day workouts at like 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. to get us ready for the season. Fourth graders. Now, I absolutely hated it. Like, I hated the whole thing. That first two weeks, I lost like 10 pounds, how intense it was. I had to like make weight cut at the end of it, and the coach was like, don't eat anything when you go home from, from practice, and just spit a lot into a cup. It's like, okay, this is weird. I hated it, and from that point on, going into the season, you can ask my mom who's here, I cried before every single practice. My dad would help me stretch out, and I was just, I hated it. I just absolutely hated it. But here's the thing. In my family, one of the core tenets of what it means to be in this family was that you finish what you started. You finish what you started. Now, before you worried I had childhood trauma about this, and I need to go see a counselor and all that stuff. No, this was actually a really good experience for me. And if Keaton was here, she would agree, I think most of the time, that what this taught me was really healthy and good. But you finish what you started. As we think about God's healing, delivering, liberating work in this account, as we think about Exodus as a continuation of the Genesis story, you need to hear this. God finishes what he started. God finishes what he started. He doesn't forget his promises. He loves his creation too much to abandon it. He loves his people, humans that rebelled against him, too much to abandon them. God finishes what he started. If we're going to experience the delivering, healing, liberating work of God, it starts with God's character, that God finishes what he started. It's God's activity on our behalf, not our own. And so as we journey through the rest of Exodus, would you have that be the foundation, the core of everything we learn from this point on. God finishes what he started. Let's continue reading. Exodus 1, verses 8 through 14. It says this, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. Just a quick note here. You'll notice in the book of Acts, the moment the church is persecuted, they actually multiply. The places in the world where the church is growing the most is not where they're most comfortable with Christianity, but where Christianity is most persecuted. That's where God's people thrive the best. 
at the end of verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Verse 13, and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their harsh labor. The Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Let's pause there. Let me, just note, let me just show you one thing from this little section that we're looking at right here. It says that Joseph meant nothing to Pharaoh. So a new king arose who didn't know Pharaoh and his, or Joseph and his family. And it said Joseph meant nothing. Some translations say did not know Joseph. Really the word is dismissive. They were dis, Pharaoh was dismissive of this people. And as you, told, you can tell from the account, he was suspicious of them. In the back of your brain, you have this part called the amygdala. And I don't know if we have any brain scientists here, but you'll probably be able to explain this way better than me. And, and Brianne could probably come up here and give us a five-minute speech if she didn't hate speaking in front of people. But don't worry, Brianne, I won't do that to you. But the amygdala is in the back of your brain. And it does a lot of different things. But the thing I want to focus on today is the amygdala, in a sense, processes your fear, the fears you have. Fear is a really good thing. Fear helps us and prevents us from running into the street when a car is coming. Fear prevents us from getting too close to the edge of a cliff so we don't fall off. Fear is a really healthy thing. If you didn't have fear, you, you might think that'd be a really good thing, but it's not. But like any good thing in God's creation, fear can be distorted and warped and become something that's really harmful and sinful. What happens often because of the ways we've been sinned against and because of our own trauma is fear and the amygdala in the back of our brain becomes hyper-aroused, for lack of a better word. It becomes hijacked. And so now everyone and everything becomes a potential threat to us. All of us, in some way, fear different things. And the things we fear the most, we have a tendency to then create an enemy out of it. Even Sally, this last week, with the shooting in Atlanta, fear drove someone to label an enemy another group of people, eight people exact, and use that as fear to then blame and make an enemy out of. And to, in some way, you could use the word oppress. Fear has this ability, because of sin, to then make us make enemies out of someone else. The 24-7 news cycle we live in is built on hijacking your amygdala. Making it so that everything and everyone who doesn't agree with you or doesn't hold your position is the enemy. And then we blame the other person for our challenges or problems. For lack of a better word, Pharaoh's amygdala has been hijacked here. Because of his own sin and his own power and the place that he held, he saw Israel that was growing in number and became suspicious and fearful of them. And because of his fear, he labeled them as the enemy. Because they were the enemy, he began to oppress them. Ruthlessly, it says twice in the account into slave labor. 400 years of it, we know from the Exodus account. As we think about this story, before we move on to seeing how God comes and meets his people, I just want to pause for a second and notice because of the ways we've been both sinned against and are sinners, we have the capacity to be Pharaoh too. We could be Pharaoh. We have the capacity and propensity in our own hearts because of our own brokenness to then oppress or hurt or blame or create enemies out of others. We do it all the time. 
And so right now, again, in the silence of the space, I just want you to just to ask the simple question, who is a, is a group of people or, or something in our world that you fear that you have the propensity to make an enemy out of? Who do you fear? And how could that fear drive you to make an enemy out of that person, that thing, or that people? Just think for a second and try to identify that in your own heart of what fear often drives us to do because of our own sense of one security or power or identity, whatever it is, we then can, in a sense, make an enemy out of someone else. Just let that sit in your heart for a second as an act of confession. Let's continue reading. If you have your Bible in front of you, I'm going to read you a big section here. We're going to start in Exodus 1.15. Let's listen to how the story unfolds. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were, I'm going to mess this up, Shipparah and Pua, and, and, and he said to them, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I love their response. Check this out. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Verse 20, So God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. Hear that echo again. No matter how much God's people experience persecution and are frustrated, they continue to multiply. Verse 21, And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Think about that picture. The ugliness of what is now happening in Egypt. If you see a Hebrew, Hebrew boy child, throw it into the Nile. Remember that later in a couple weeks as we see the plagues in the Passover. 2-1. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. This is really important. Levi was the priestly tribe. And so the, uh, the writer here, Moses, is trying to alert you to something important. That this, this child's birth is of significance. And she became pregnant, verse 2, and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, another word there could be good. It's an echo from the creation account again of the goodness of God's world. She hid him for three months, verse 3. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and she saw the baby. He was crying. Go figure, he's crying because he's in a basket in the middle of the Nile. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. How precious is that of a story? The mom gets to spend a couple more months with little Moses. Verse 9, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. 
When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Let's continue reading. 2.11. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that and seeing no one. That, that sounds like Moses is being kind of uh, or, uh, tricky. But another way to actually read this is that, in a sense, he was looking around like, is anybody going to stop this? Like, that's actually the better translation here. Is anybody going to stop this? This beating of this slave? So he looked around this way and that, verse 13, or sorry, at the end of verse 12, looking this way and that, seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. Verse 15, when Pharaoh heard this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came out to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. The word here, rescue, is like the word deliverance. Again, a, a foreshadowing of what is to come. Verse 18. When the girls returned to rule, their father, he asked them, Why have you returned so early today? They answered, An Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us to water the flock. And, 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 the, and the dad asked, Where is he? Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. This is really nice that it's my car. Let's continue reading. Zipporah gave birth to a son, and Moses named him Gershom, saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. Let's pause there. One thing I want you to notice from here, actually two things. One, notice the story of the midwives. Pharaoh is unnamed in the story, but the midwives are named. Why, isn't, why doesn't the writer name Pharaoh, but yet he names the midwives? And then secondly, notice that as Moses was put in this tar and pitch basket, the word used here is actually the word ark, used in the story of Noah and the flood. Again, this little, this little pitch and tar basket becomes, in a sense, this, this uh, symbol for deliverance that Moses now is saved from being thrown into the Nile. It's really interesting to look at the story and then to think about it even in our context and our congregation as a whole. So as one of your pastors, I have this great privilege of every week, of every day, of every the last couple of years to get to peer into your life. That you share with me your pains and your struggles, your broken relationships, the things that have gone wrong. And I have this beautiful responsibility to be able to peer in, not voyeuristically, but to actually alert you to the ways that God is already at work. To alert you of the unlikely ways and the unlikely circumstances that God is at work in your life. If we're going to think about freedom, liberation, redemption, deliverance, healing over the next three weeks, you have to recognize that God is already at work. And one of my jobs is to simply alert you to the ways He's already doing that. 
Chris Gonzalez, the guy I get to pastor with, he's really good at that and often does that for me. What are the ways God is already at work in your life? This is a space of miracles in many ways as I get to think about the different stories that are represented here. So please hear this from this last big section. God often works in the most unlikely of, unlikely of circumstances and unlikely of people. He uses these two midwives, and he's using now Moses later in the story that now is a fugitive murderer who is going to be the redeemer of his people. Listen to this quote from one of the commentators I read this week. He says this, Ironically, this child once doomed to death by Pharaoh's decree will become the very instrument, talking about Moses, of Pharaoh's destruction and the means through which all Israel escapes not merely Pharaoh's decree, but Egypt itself. This child, once abandoned in the reeds along the shore of the Nile, will later lead his people in triumph through the Red Sea. God works through the most unlikely of circumstances and most unlikely of people like you and like me. If you've been reading with us, hopefully the last, the last 20 minutes or so as we've been working through this account, I left three verses off at the end. In many ways, the plot has been set here. You have a setting, you have a conflict, you have rising action, but then there's a twist. There's an unresolved tension now because the, the, the main character of the story, apart from God, Moses, is now a foreigner in another land. Like what's going to happen is kind of the question that we should be asking as we're listening to this story. So read the last three verses with me. And this is where we'll, where we'll stop reading. Verses 22, sorry, 23 through 25. It says this. Think about the tension you'd feel. You're listening to this account. Maybe you feel right now, hey, this is really, the, the account's unfolding, but now the main character of our account, Moses, is now a foreigner, a fugitive. People, God's people are still enslaved, in slavery. It says in verse 23, During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Like a parent who hears even just the faintest of whispers of their child in the middle of the night. What you need to hear here at the very end of this passage is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When the cry goes up to God, God comes down. When the cry goes up, God comes down. When the cry goes up, God comes down. He comes down. Notice from the passage, it says first, he heard his people crying to him and he moves closer. He saw their oppression and he moves closer. And his heart was moved with concern and compassion, and he moved closer. When the cry goes up, God comes down. To close our time today, I want to practice that. I want to practice what it looks like to intercede 
for God to meet us where we're at. That like the Israelites who were asking for God's healing, deliverance, and liberation, they began crying out to God, and God was concerned about them, and God was on a mission to redeem, liberate, and heal them. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been practicing this different forms of prayer. We did some listening prayer. Last week, a form of gratitude prayer. This week, we're going to try a form of intercessory prayer, healing prayer, crying out to God to bring his healing, deliverance, and freedom. And so in a moment here, I'm going to have you break up into groups of four, three or four. You can choose. And as you break into groups of three and four, I'm going to have you, one of you, courageously, vulnerably, to share an area of your life where you need healing. You need freedom. You need deliverance. You need to be liberated for something. It could be a pattern of sin, a destructive pattern in your life that you just feel like you cannot break. It could be an unreconciled relationship that you need help seeing restoration and healing. It could be crippling anxiety and depression that you feel like you can't move past. It just continues to be this endless cycle. It could be for something else, to, to a part of your body to heal. Whatever it is, I want one of you in that group, I won't have to, we won't have all four do it, but one of you vulnerably share an area of your life where you desire to experience healing and freedom. And then the other three people or two people, I want you to gather around that person, however comfortable they are with the spacing. I want you to gather around that person and begin crying out to God for him to do his healing and delivering work in their life. When the cry goes up, God comes down. And so right now, I'm going to release you to get into those groups. You can move around if you need. If you want to have some space, you don't want to have everybody listen to what you're sharing. That's totally fine. But find some space. We're going to spend the next, the next five minutes in these groups. And I want you to have somebody vulnerably share. It's going to take a lot of courage. I want to give you this preface. Some of you have been praying for specific things for a long time. A long time. Just acknowledge that. Like Peter in the Gospels, would you say, Lord, help my unbelief. I want to believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. May that be the start, the posture of your heart. If you feel like, ah, I'm, I'm done, I'm, I'm too cynical, too pessimistic, I'm done actually asking God for healing, liberating work. All right, so break into your groups. We're going to have five minutes. If you would, I'm going to give you the freedom here. If you're like, you know what, I don't want to participate, this is too heavy or this is too much, you're free, to, you're free to pass. You can just say, God, help my unbelief. But I'd really encourage you to get in groups for someone to offer something and then begin praying on behalf of that person for healing, deliverance, liberation for whatever they share. As you get into your groups, let me just pray over you as you begin to share. Holy Spirit, would you come and meet us? the Spirit who fills our hearts and fills our community. God, would you bring to mind the things we need healing and deliverance from? Jesus, would your healing hand, as we see throughout the Gospels, be upon the shoulders of the men and women and children in this space? And Father, would your love compel you to meet us in these next couple of moments? Amen.
whether you're praying for healing, whether you're praying for uh, maybe a part of your childhood to be restored, whether you're praying or just prayed for a pattern of sin to be broken in your life, like one of these sticks on the ground to be broken in half, whether you're praying for a restored relationship, whether a marriage or a friendship, whether you're praying for God to just show up in an impossible way, it seems like. Whatever it is, it's okay to sit in the tension of that often God doesn't work at the way and the pace that we can make sense of, that his work is a mystery. For, for 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited for the promised son to fulfill God's blessing to the world. For 15 years, Joseph waited as he was sold into slavery from his brothers to then be appointed to second in command of all of Egypt and to save the world from a famine. For 400 years, God's people cried out, asking for them to be delivered from the bonds of slavery. For 14 years, King David, anointed to be king, waited to be appointed as king. For 2,000 years, from the time of Abraham until Jesus came, the world waited and longed for healing and deliverance. In Christ, God always finishes what he started. In Christ, God always finishes what he started. Every week we come to this table to taste the finished work of Christ on the cross that has brought healing and deliverance to his world. And yet we sit in this tension that it's, not, it's still not the way it's supposed to be. They're still waiting for God to show up and to finish his liberating and healing work for not only you and me, but his entire world. And so as you come to the table today, would you come with that waiting, that longing? Maybe like if you fasted before, that hunger you have for food. Would you come to the table eager today to, to taste God's work he's already started in Christ for, for the forgiveness of sins, for the healing and deliverance of his world that isn't yet finished, that we still wait for him to do once and for all at the end of the story? Listen to these words that we read each week. For I received from the Lord, which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with me? We're going to recite together from your handout as we come to the table. Three simple sentences. Regardless of where you feel and regardless of what experience you've had of God's liberating work in your life, would you hold and cling to the truth of these three sentences as we say them together? They're on your handout, I think on the second or third page. It starts with Christ has died. We're going to recite it together. You can follow me. 
And then you're going to come to the table to receive from God. So recite with me. Ready? Christ has died. Christ is risen. And Christ will come again. Come to the table. The gifts of God for the people of God.